All right, guys, how you doing? Can you see me? Can everybody see me? Can I get a thumbs up? Can I get something? Give me a thumbs up. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Hello, anybody there? All right, we got a thumbs up. Hey guys, how you doing? If you want me to answer your questions, super chat me. I will look to answer the super chat people. Uh, how are you all doing? Very, very excited. The World Cup final is happening this Sunday. France versus Argentina. I was asked which of which were the favorites at the start of the World Cup. I said Brazil, France, and Argentina. And here we are, Argentina, France in the final. All right, guys, I'm I'm waiting. Hi, Professor Sad. How you do? Hi, Dr. Goodlooks. How you doing? I'm looking for those super chats. We got 39 people. We need at least a couple of hundred people. All right. Mbappe knocked Argentina out last World Cup. Will he do it again? I won't even entertain such questions that are an affront to human dignity. Guys, super chat me. Talk to me. Okay, we have our first super chat person. We have Neil W. Thank you so much for starting us off. Parasitic Mind on Audible was great, but could have been better if you narrated it. Please narrate the next one. Uh, thank you, Neil. This is uh, not arguably. It was definitely the main, quote, criticism of the Parasitic Mind, as I've mentioned many times before, which is that it wasn't narrated in my own voice. But as I've explained in the past, it wasn't my choice. I was I offered uh, to narrate it, but uh, the audio... Uh, company that bought the the rights uh of my book uh decided to do it in-house i don't know if it was uh you know for what reason they decided to do that so maybe it's it was cheaper for them to get an in-house person rather than have me you know i would have charged them what my time value is uh, you know hourly value maybe they thought they could get it for cheaper so i can't tell you i will definitely do my best to uh, provide the feedback to my publisher that you know a lot of people wanted my voice and i understand that once people know you and they know your voice they'd rather hear you know your book and your voice so i, I get that uh, but ultimately the the final decision is not mine because once you sell your your rights to to a company then you know they can do whatever they want so we'll see but i certainly will keep your kind uh suggestion in mind okay we have a second super chat Thoughts on Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keene. I, I don't know if you're referring to a specific incident. I don't know what that's all about. I, If I'm not mistaken, I've been on Posey Parker's uh, show a few years ago. I think she's the British lady with the, kind of the platinum blonde hair. Uh, if that's who you're referring to, uh, I mean, she was certainly a lovely host uh, when she hosted me on her show. But I don't know who Kelly J. Keene is. So... My apologies, but I can't answer that question any further. Let's keep going down to see if there are any other. Let's get the ball rolling. Uh, okay. We got SK. Thank you so much for your contribution. Dr. Gad, how do we get Pierre Polvier in office? Well, <laughs> uh, I guess he's already the, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party. You hope that uh, whenever the next federal election happens, enough people who previously had voted for the liberals will be uh, persuaded to not go with the liberals. Uh, there is no other way to 
to deal with this. I'm not, I, you know, I don't really know much about uh, Pierre. Uh, I know that he's been on uh, Jordan Peterson's sh uh, show, so that's that's good. Uh, apparently, he's got some good ideas, some sort of non-woke ideas. One thing of the very little that I know of him, one thing that I don't appreciate is that he he seems to have been a politician since straight out of the womb. I, I, as a general rule, I despise that. I like people who have had productive careers outside of politics and then decided to go into politics, uh, you know, as a second career or as, you know, they, they put a pause on their, you know, they're surgeons and then they decide to go into politics and then they go back to medicine or they, they were professors or they were whatever, lawyers. And that's how historically it used to be in the past. It was, there was no political class. You know, you were first somebody outside of politics, and then you decided to go serve within the political arena. So from that perspective, he is an establishment guy. So I, I don't think I can say anything more about him. Okay, the, uh, the the stuff is starting to come in. Let me just make sure that I covered everybody. We got Neil, yes. Uh, Haley Hansen, we got her. SK, yes. Mark O'Connell, thank you so much for your um, uh, contribution, Mark. Uh, do you have any favorite philosophers? If so, who and wow? Why? I love that question. Uh, too many, I think, to to mention, but I would say Bertrand Russell, if only because, you know, he was a very pithy writer who also was a logician and mathematician, and my background's in mathematics, so I'm, I have a pension towards him. I love uh, Karl Popper, uh, philosopher of science. He's the gentleman who developed the concept of uh, the falsification principle, the idea being that uh, for for scientific theory to be to be within the realm of science, it has to be falsifiable. In other words, there needs to be a data pattern, a data set that would falsify the theory, even if that data set doesn't exist. At least conceptually, there must be such a data set. If there isn't, then it is tautological. It's unfalsifiable. It's within the realm of non-science. So, for example, I've often used the example of uh, destiny. Destiny cannot be a falsifiable theory. Let's let's test it. Uh, if I want to test whether it's my destiny to be hit by a truck when I leave the house, if I leave the house, I cross the street and I don't get hit by a truck, it was my destiny that I don't get hit by a truck. If I leave the house, cross the street, and I get hit by a truck, it was my destiny to be hit by a truck. Therefore, all states of the world uh, would result in an instantiation of my destiny. Therefore, there is no data that would falsify the concept of, of destiny, and therefore it's it's unfalsifiable, hence it's not scientific. So Karl Popper would be another one. There are many. Of course, in my forthcoming book where I talk about, uh, uh, by the way, the I don't even think I've, I've mentioned this publicly, so you guys are the first one arguably to know this. The, I will say tentative title, but I don't think it's tentative title at this point. I think we're pretty much almost set with the title. It's going to be called The Sad Truth About Happiness, uh, SAD, S-A-A-D. It's a book about, uh, you know, how to pursue the good life, how to be happy, using both my personal anecdotes, my personal experiences, but also ancient wisdoms and, and current empirical science. And through doing the research for this book, I became, I familiarized my, myself quite a bit more than I had previously been with a lot of the uh, philosophical writings on the good life. Of course, many of the dominant ones were ancient Greek philosophers, Epictetus, 
I mean, the Stoics, you know, Marcus Aurelius. And so a lot of those guys, I, I already had a great appreciation for them, but they just blew my mind because, you know, as I would think that I just came up with some brilliant new insight, I would go do some research and say, oh, God damn it, Epictetus already said this 2000 years ago. So, uh, so I would have to say that collectively, probably some of the ancient Greeks, possibly the Stoics, but of course, Aristotle, I talk about, um, the golden mean of Aristotle in my forthcoming book, uh, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, all these guys. So yeah, there you go. Thank you, Mark, for your question. Let me put back my glasses. Dear Mr. Saad, how can I develop my critical thinking and critical writing? I have difficulties in crafting strong arguments for my psychology thesis. Look, it's uh, it, 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 critical thinking is, is a slightly different set of cognitive skills than, you know, critical writing, critical writing or writing, just writing ability, is a measure of your communication abilities, which of course does necessitate that you have critical thinking abilities, right? How do you structure a roadmap? How do you tell a story? So I think, for example, one of the reasons why my my general public outreach and you know my my popular books like The Parasitic Mind, like The Consuming Instinct, the other two books are academic books, so they're not as palatable to a general audience but the reason why these books are uh, have been so successful is because i write in a manner that while it remains you know uh, serious and rigorous and scientific it's also playful it's organized it's clear it's economical so i don't think there is a unique um, strategy for being a, a good writer but for example you do have to have a, a strong roadmap now the roadmap can organically change but you have to have a clear idea, you know, so that when someone is reading page 187, they know where they've been in the unfolding story to get to page 187. And they have a sense of where you're going next. In other words, at, at any point in the unfolding narrative, you always have a sense of where I'm taking you. You're, you're with me. We're doing this together. You're, I'm telling you a story and it's a gripping story. And so I think that would be what I would uh, say for uh, writing. I've I've released a few sad truth clips where I talk about you know uh, lessons for aspiring authors. One of which is just discipline. So to try to finish a book when a when a publisher gives you a big book advance and they say, hey, you've got a year to return it to me. You can't take a week off. You can't say, you know what, I'm I'm too busy this week. I, I've got too much teaching this week. I've got too many students to worry about. I'm working on this research project every single day, whether I have bronchitis or I'm tired or I'm stressed every single day. I need to hit a certain mark of, of just number of words that I produce, whatever it is, 400 words. And by any means necessary, if I have to drag myself through the finish line, I'm going to make sure that I always maintain that cadence. So discipline is another important, um, you know, set of skills or, or, or trait that you have to have grit, perseverance, Many times, you know, I sit in front of the computer and I'm doing endless research. And then what comes out of that day in terms of actual output is five lines. My wife will ask me, you know, hey, how did it go the writing today? I say, oh, you know, I don't know. I got about less than 200 words. I, I need to do some more. She goes, well, you've been gone for eight hours. What are you doing? Well, I was stuck doing some research on some obscure, you know, reference from ancient Greece. 
And so it's also a lot of grit. It's a lot of perseverance. It's a lot of resilience. Things that I talk about, by the way, in my next book. In terms of critical thinking, I mean, it depends in which domain you're in which domain you're talking about. But you know, uh, in in the parasitic mind, I talk about you know the building of nomological networks of cumulative evidence when you're trying to convince someone of of the veracity of your position. You try to obtain distinct lines of evidence across cultures, across disciplines, across species, across methodologies, all triangulating to the fact that your position is the correct one. So there isn't a singular magical bullet, but it's you know, you've got to do your homework. You've got to be evidence-based. You've got to be logic-based, reason-based. Good luck with your thesis. All right, let me put back my glasses. We have 115 people. I need at least 300 people. What's going on? Call me Studo. Let me go to Call Me Studo. Where is he? Where is Call Me Studo? Okay. Yes, Call Me Studo. What is the most powerful lesson evolutionary biology has to teach us? Put another way, why EB, evolutionary biology, or EP, evolutionary psychology wisdom, do you wish everyone knew and applied daily? Thanks for all your work. Much love from Virginia. Fantastic question. It's By the way, it's, 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 it's a classic question that I ask on, you know, pretty much you know, most of my exams at the end of the course, I say, you know, give me some practical and theoretical implications of now having learned about the EP lens. Of course, please remember, for those of you who who are new to my work, EP, which means evolutionary psychology, is simply the application of evolution or evolutionary biology to the study of the human mind. Okay, so EB or EP, it's the same thing. What are the uh, what are key implications uh, to answer your question very broadly? I think let me just answer it in one way because otherwise I can give you endless examples in specific domains. Here's how you apply EP in your marriage. Here's how you apply EP uh, as an employee. Here's how you apply EP as a consumer. So that there would be too many examples to enumerate, but I'll give you an answer at the epistemological level. Uh, evolutionary theory makes a very clear distinction between proximate causes and ultimate causes. This is one of the key lessons that I want all my students to take away from uh, an evolutionary understanding of human behavior. Approximate causes is where much of science operates, right? It, it explains the how and what. How does diabetes work? What are the factors that increase your proclivity to, you know, to have diabetes? So it's the mechanistic explanation of a phenomenon. Much of science operates at the proximate level. Most Nobel Prizes have been won at the proximate level. That's that's great. No problem. The ultimate explanation is the Darwinian why of that phenomenon, right? So if you, for example, say that uh, pregnancy sickness or morning sickness that women experience, there are many proximate phenomena that we could study. How do different smells trigger the severity of symptoms of pregnancy sickness. So how, what, those are proximate. The ultimate explanation would be why has pregnancy sickness evolved as a physiological phenomenon? What what adaptive problem does it solve? And it turns out that for you to fully explain a phenomenon involving human beings, well, never mind human beings, involving any biological agent requires that you answer the phenomenon at two levels, the proximate and ultimate. So when you are only answering the proximate causes of human behavior, in a sense, you're blind to all of the other layers of explanations. 
right? And so, so the most fundamental reason or lesson that you take away in understanding the evolutionary roots of human behavior is that it expands the explanatory power of your explanation for a given phenomenon. Okay, I hope that that's clear because it's a, I mean, if you only heard that explanation and nothing else today, your time was well spent. So thank you very much for that fantastic question. Call me Studo. All right, let's move on to the next person. I'm going down the list here. Oh, one of our old time favorites, Bartolome Esteban Murillo. How are you doing, sir? Good evening, Dr. Saad. Will you be writing a direct sequel to The Parasitic Mind? If so, what would be the theme? Have a wonderful night. Cheers. Well, thank you for your uh, contribution, your super chat donation. Um, you know, I thought about that. Yep. You know, I'm torn. So let me let me tell you a little story. Uh, in my forthcoming book, in the next book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, which, by the way, will be available for pre-order. The, the, the book cover was just finalized yesterday, last yesterday, not last night, yesterday afternoon. And so they're hoping to put up the book cover on Amazon in the next couple of days, in which case I will announce that it's now available for pre-orders. And it, it really is important for people to pre-order it because what that means is let's suppose 10,000 people pre-order it. So then those sales are only realized the first week that the book officially is released. I think it'll be released in, in the summer. But that means that the 10,000 sales that were already guaranteed through pre-order, once they materialize, you can right away enter the, the bestsellers list. And if you do, it becomes an avalanche. It becomes a cascade. It becomes a domino effect. So for any person who is, you know, who's a fan of my work, who, you know, wishes to purchase the next book, it is uniquely important to pre-order it rather than simply, you know, order it at your leisure once it's released. I mean, that's great too, but it's even that much better if, if a whole bunch of people pre-order it. But in any case, in, in that book, I have a, a chapter on variety seeking. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to come to your question, Mr. Murillo, in a second. Uh, and in the chapter on variety seeking, I talk about you know, food variety seeking, sexual variety seeking, intellectual variety seeking. And I argue that, you know, one of the ways that you enrich yourself, as we know from the old maxim, variety is the spice of life, that it's important to navigate through many, at least from my perspective, many intellectual landscapes. So it'd be very, very easy for me to write a, a sequel tome to the parasitic mind. And many people have, have wanted me to do that. And I can certainly do that with my eyes closed. But then I was just excited about trying something completely new. In other words, I'm very much driven by a pure bent of, you know, what moves me. So I, I thought it was really important for me to write the parasitic mind. I did. And then I thought, you know, I often give advice to people and people, it really resonates with people. You know what? I'm going to write a book about, you know, people always ask me, why are you always smiling? You always seem to have such a sunny disposition. You're always joking. You always seem to be happy and go happy, go lucky. So, okay, well, let me, let me put it down in a book. So. Maybe down the line, I will revisit writing a sequel in the immediate uh, future. Uh, I have several other possible book ideas, uh, but for now, I'd like to get this next book out. I, I'm very excited by it because, in a sense, it's the exact the flip of the uh, the the the, uh, the other side of the coin of the parasitic mind. The parasitic mind is about idea pathogens that cause us to engage in disordered thinking and irrational thinking and parasitic thinking. Whereas this next book is 
how do you implement choices or adopt mindsets that are positive that lead to contentment to joy to happiness to purpose to meaning and so in a sense it's uh, it's the, the opposite on the continuum of parasitic to happy uh, i'm happy to have written such a book so i'm very excited by it okay next we've got steve break with a incredibly generous donation i am thank you if everybody were jealous uh, as jealous as generous as you are uh i could have the financial freedom to do nothing but engage with with people give talks set up a online university or online lectures only write books you know, I I love being a professor. It's in my DNA to be a professor. But you know, as I progress in my career, I've, I'm now in my 29th year as a professor. It also comes with with huge costs. There are many elements of of being a professor that, at this stage of my career, I I, I despise. I'm now mired in all kinds of grading. Imagine someone at my stage. And I don't mean oh, I'm too good for it. I'm above it. But you know. You'd like to think that I'm not fielding questions from students of why they received a, a C minus when they deserve a C minus, right? And so uh, at this stage of my career, I'm wondering if, if, if I had the financial freedom to, to pursue only the things that I want to pursue, which, which is what? It's not, it's not that I want to retire and go surfing all day and slack off. Is that I only want to spend my time creating. And this is something that I talk about in my next book, the, the Sad Truth About Happiness. That really one of the best ways to guarantee purpose and meaning is if you are in the in the industry of creation, whatever the creative impulse is that you are instantiating. And so, of course, being a professor involves a huge amount of creation. When you're writing scientific papers, you're creating. When you, when you're writing books, you're creating. But you're also serving on a thousand committees, and you're also doing a million outreach stuff, and you're also teaching many students and supervising students and serving on editorial boards. And so that the amount of the pie that is left for you to create is always being taxed. And um, so. Thank you so much, Mr. Brake, for your incredibly generous donation. I don't, I don't even want to say what it is, but it's, it's impressive. Thank you. It touches me. And there isn't even a question there. So my goodness, it's a pure act of altruism. So thank you, sir. We've got Erki Dreyak. I'm sure I destroyed your name and your pronunciation of your name. And if I have my deep apologies... Uh, dear Professor, what's your thoughts on Andrew Tate? Uh, it's going to disappoint you what I'm about to say, but I've seen his name many times. I have no idea who he is. I know that he was recently interviewed by uh, Patrick Bet David. Uh, many of you may know who Patrick is. He's got a, a great show. He's a big entrepreneur. He's been very successful in, in his career. He he was uh, gracious enough to. I've been on his show remotely, and he's been on mine. Uh, but this past June, I think, he invited me in person to go to Florida to do his show in person. You can go check it out on his channel. My God, he's tall. I mean, I've I've never been one to to care too much about height, uh, but I basically came up to his knees. I was basically speaking to his knees. It was insane. Anyways, uh, he must be, I don't know, 6'5 or something like that. Uh, anyways, but the reason I'm mentioning him is because Patrick Bet David, I think, recently had Andrew Tate on. Uh, 
that's all I know about it. I don't know. I, I guess he, he was canceled for saying some cancelable things, but I couldn't tell you who he is. Maybe somebody could write it here and I could look at it, or maybe I'll go do the homework after we finish our uh, super chat conversation. Malby Deldrick, thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, why did you post the screenshot of your Amazon bestseller without stating it had been filtered for the civil rights category? It was misleading. Really? So it says that it's in the civil rights category. I took a screenshot of exactly what the rankings are. I mean, it it defies logic that you would. There are many subcategories. So there is a there is a overall Amazon list that would be your number three on all of Amazon across categories. But then there are your number three in medicine, your number one in civil rights, your number uh, six in whatever. So I take the screenshot and say, hey, look, look who's back to number one in Canada. But it says it's in the category. So it's difficult. I don't want to be spicy in retorting to you because you were kind enough to offer a small donation. But if you think that a screenshot of actual reality is misleading, unfortunately, I can't help you. And uh, frankly, it's shameful of you to, to, uh, to write such a thing. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Okay. <sighs> Unbelievable. Khan Min Nguyen. Actually, there's a lot of Nguyen. Like, I'm assuming you're Vietnamese. Uh, there are many. I think, actually, my favorite pho soup restaurant in Montreal is called Pho Nguyen. I think so. Anyways, let me read your question. Thank you so much for your contribution. Hello, Dr. Saad. As a gay man, I'm concerned about activists interfering with scientific research on LGBT issues. Their reason is it can be used for eugenics. Do you think that worry has any historical fact? I'm not exactly sure I understand what you mean. Let me read it again. I'm concerned about activists interfering with scientific research on LGBT issues. Uh, So let me just start with that. Uh, do you mean LGBT activists or do you mean anti-LGBT activists? I, I don't follow what your meaning is, but let me answer it more generally. I don't think that any research that has scientific merit that is pursued objectively in an unbiased manner via the application of the scientific method should ever constitute forbidden knowledge. In other words, there is no research that you shouldn't do because it might hurt someone's feelings, because it might have downstream negative consequences. No, because then that becomes a complete slippery slope. Oh, don't do research on sex differences. It might hurt uh, one sex's feelings. Don't do research on gay issues because that might marginalize the LGBT community. Don't do research on racial differences because group B might think it's racist. Uh, don't do research on physics because it led to the creation of the atomic bomb. So so in science, there is no forbidden knowledge as long as it is pursued assiduously uh, via the, applica- the unbiased application of the scientific method. Their reason is that it can be used for eugenics. So I think I understand what you mean here. I think what you're saying is that people shouldn't do research on LGBT issues because eugenics. No, I think it's a far stretch. As a matter of fact, I was going to do a study on applying uh, uh, evolutionary principles to study 
certain consumer phenomena with same-sex couples. Unfortunately, the student who was doctor student who was going to work on this project with me, uh, you know, didn't work out with that student, uh, and so. I'm totally in support of doing any research that, uh, by the way, research doesn't have to have practical value for you to do it as long as it advances human knowledge in whichever way you define advance, right? Then I'm, I'm all for it, right? I mean, people do research on dead languages, extinct languages. Uh, they don't have practical value necessarily, but yet they are advancing the pantheon of human knowledge. And so I'm all for it. Sometimes research that has no practical value will find some practical value 300 years later. So for example, Fermat, the mathematician, in French you say Fermat, uh, that's how you pronounce his name, F-E-R-M-A-T, was a number theorist who who was doing research that collected dust for hundreds of years. And then with the advent of cryptography, you know, cybersecurity, all this kind of stuff, uh, then a lot of that research has now suddenly become very relevant. So you should never judge the merits of research simply by its applicability if it is if it advances human knowledge go for it thank you for that question mr nugien i hope i'm pronouncing that right umberto masoyero thank you for your contribution hi professor sad how come public opinion is terrorized by fascism to the point of banning its iconography yet none cares about communism even seen as hip let me read that again because i'm not sure i follow Hi, Professor Saad. How come public opinion is terrorized by fascism to the point of banning its iconography, yet none cares about communism, even seen as hip? So I think you mean something like, you know, people freak out if they see the the, the Nazi swastika. Uh, so I think that's what you mean by iconography. And yet when it comes to a dreadful, you know, political economic system like communism, then all the cool kids think, yeah, yeah, communism, s- socialism, that's great. Well, because most kids, most people are imbeciles. Most people are morons, right? Paul Meal, the very famous uh, psychologist, when he uh, had written, I think, part of his uh, autobiographical notes, I'm paraphrasing his words, but they really resonated with me. He said, I'm always astonished by the extent to which most people are stupid. Or something to that effect. Now, it might sound as though he was being haughty and elitist, but I think he was just truly observing a fact that, you know, when you speak to most people, they're just blindingly ignorant. Uh, So I think, to your point, I just think that most people are cognitive misers. They don't put in the work. Oh, socialism is a great thing. You take from the rich, the, the, the fat rich people, and give it to the needy. That just sounds good. This is why you know socialism and communism sounds great when you're an 18-year-old moron at Oberlin College, but then when you grow up, you don't think it's so cool. Uh, so everybody is all for kumbaya socialism when they're young, and then they grow out of the, the ideological disease. Thank you for that question, Mr. Masoyero. Let's move on to Viren. Thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you for all you do. Godfather, wishing you and your family the best from down under. No question, just my thanks. Have a wonderful day. Oh, that is so lovely. Quick, because you said down under. First of all, my apologies for Argentina taking out Australia. Australia, my goodness, what what a performance. I mean, to to lose, I think the final score was 2-1 to, to Argentina where Martinez, the goalie of Argentina, had to have a last-second save for them not to tie. 
uh, I wouldn't have given them such a chance to to be able to go to toe to toe with Argentina, and yet they did it. So you've got a lot to be proud of. I love Australia. I don't mean the soccer team now. I mean uh, the country. In 2001, my first sabbatical leave, I spent seven weeks in the area, five weeks in Australia, two weeks in New Zealand, spoke at a few universities and so on. And I just thought, this is a place that I could live. And at the time, when my wife and I were starting to think, do we want to go back to Montreal? We ended up then leaving. I took a visiting professorship at UC Irvine. I spent a few years in Southern California. But short of Southern California at the time, I would have happily gone to Sydney, to Melbourne, to to Adelaide. I didn't go to the West Coast. I didn't go to Perth. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to speak at what is it called the the Dark Festival or the I can't remember what it's called. It's in it's in uh, Hogarth, Tasmania, and the gentleman who uh, funds that festival had asked me how much would it cost for me to be the headliner at this event. I think it has like four hundred thousand attendees would have been a big deal. And so I just calculated how long it would take to to get there. I think it was like 36 hours to get to to Tasmania from Montreal and you know to go there to come back and so on. I gave him a price and his answer was this is why I can't stand you fuckwit academics. I think that was his exact word, fuckwit. I thought, boy, that's that's some lovely language when you're trying to convince someone to literally fly from the two furthest points from one another on earth to call them fuckwit. That's classy. Crocodile Dundee, mate. Uh, but in any case, thank you so much for your uh, uh, lovely words and wishing you uh, great uh, happy holidays to you and your loved ones. Okay, moving on. We got Nick K. Thank you so much for your um, super chat donation. Oh, hold on a second. I lost you. Let me just go back. Let me go back. Okay. Hold on. Oops. Yeah. I'm glad I went back because I would have missed a few. Okay. So we got Nick K. Looking forward to your book. I'll pre-order. Thank you so much. Have you considered speaking with Robert Green, 48 Laws of Power? What do you think of his work? I have heard of his work. I don't know it well, so I'll certainly note it to check it. So now I've got to check Andrew Tate and I've got to check Robert Green. I hope I remember these because... I don't know if these messages will will stay forever uh, or or whether I need to jot it. So Robert Green, Andrew Tate. I'm all, yeah, 48 laws of power. I, I'm always suspicious when the number is this big. It's as if, you know, you just kept brainstorming until you ran out of, you know, the, the 73 R's of relationship marketing, the 62 S's of strategic marketing. Why 62 MF? Why not 61? Why not 63? Although in my next book, I do have the sort of the eight secrets, but it, it's eight. It's not 67 or 48. So I can't tell you about his work. I don't know enough about it, but thank you so much for your uh, uh, donation and for uh, confirming that you'll be pre-ordering my next book. I really appreciate it. Ruth Ann Amsden, message retracted. Oh, okay, but thank you for your donation. I appreciate that. Oflameo. Thank you for your contribution. Andrew Tate now is like how Dick Masterson was at the time when he talked to Dr. Phil 20 years ago. Oh, boy. Now we're getting into a nested infinite loop of my apparent ignorance because I have no idea who Dick Masterson is. Now I'm going to get another message that says, oh, well, Dick Masterson is the Robert Foley of 
1972, who is the John Hamilton. I don't know who the F these people are. So Andrew Tate now is like how Dick Masterson was at the time when he talked to Dr. Phil 20 years ago. I do know who Dr. Phil is, uh, but okay, I'll have to check them out. No worries. I just saw a non-super chat. Show your milkers. What the hell does that mean? You look great. Your thoughts on the keto diet. I'm not going to answer those questions without a super chat, people. Come on. We have 150. Okay, that's nice, people. Let's keep going. I want to make sure I don't miss anybody. Craig, the the weir or the wire, I'm not sure. Love your podcast, interviews, etc. Thanks, God. Thank you so much, Craig. Uh, no question other than a lovely comment and a donation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Malby Deldrick, the gentleman who said that it was... <laughs> that I was being duplicitous for taking a screenshot of the ranking of my Amazon book now comes back and says, but the screenshot was in French. <laughs> this guy must be trolling me. Therefore it's a deliberate trick. Exactly. See, I live in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, where the home Amazon is in French. So when I take a screenshot of the Amazon that pops up on my home screen, which is in French because I live in a French speaking place, I am being duplicitous. Okay, you must be you must be trolling me. All right, well done. Nick K is back, thanks for the great answers. If you had unlimited budget, ability to create a big research team, which scientific question would you like to solve? Oh my God, what a fantastic question. Well, there are a few that I would like to tackle. One project that really interests me, and I don't think it would take a huge budget, frankly, and it kind of works uh, straight out of my parasitic mind work. You know, for example, Toxoplasma gondii is uh, is a is a parasite that that not only affects, you know, the, the brains of mice, as I explained in the parasitic mind, but it actually infects human brains. And there is a gentleman, a Czech uh, biologist, and I had reached out to him a few years ago because he's, he's done research looking at behavioral downstream effects of people who are infected with Toxoplasma gondii or not. And he finds some really interesting and intriguing results. So I think what I would love as a, a general possible research program would be to look at all sorts of empirical scientific questions relating to parasitized minds. So I do right now have a project ongoing with one of my graduate students where we're looking at certain predictors of what makes people prone to be parasitized by idea pathogens. So that's one project we're doing. Uh, I had a I can't remember if it was a doctoral student or a postdoc that had reached out to me asking me if I was interested in collaborating with him on looking at brain imaging studies of these kinds of idea pathogenic uh, concepts. So I think what I would love is to maybe develop a research program on the parasitology of the human mind. I think that would be a, a really cool thing. And again, as someone who loves consilience, the joining of many disciplines sort of under one unifying framework. Uh, I love the idea. It's part biological, of course, part cognitive psychology and psychology of decision-making, part parasitology, part maybe brain imaging, uh, part uh, actual markers to check if, if 
if human minds are are literally parasitized by Toxoplasma gondii or other brain worms. So I think it would, I would love to do something like that, and it would be uniquely cool to study the effects of uh, par- you know brain parasites on certain domains within the business school concepts con- context. So uh, financial traders are they more likely to engage in risky behavior? when they are parasitized by certain brain worms. And there is some research that shows that, for example, uh, drivers you drivers of cars will, will amass uh, more tickets, I think, if they have been parasitized by Toxoplasma gondii. So, th- so I think that's one area that I would love to uh, get into. And by the way, this speaks exactly to my earlier question, Nick, which is, you know, really, if I were... I, I, I love my university in that they've always given me the freedom, you know, to 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 hands off to do whatever I wanted to do. Although they don't necessarily grant me the accolades that I'm deserving of, precisely because you know of the things that I speak about. So I'm 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 grateful for many of the things that my university has offered me. But one of the things that they haven't offered is that someone at my stage of my career with my profile would perhaps be teaching one course a year at my stage. You know, I might be teaching one PhD course with six students. And the, re- the argument is that someone with my research profile, with my notoriety, their time would be much better spent, you know, serving as the director of a lab where, where I'm heading a, you know, a 10-person, a 20-person research team where we're pumping out papers left, right, and center. That's exactly how most universities operate. Unfortunately, at my university, we're what's called a balanced university, which means that uh, you, you really can't get away from the reasonably heavy teaching load. So that while we are a research university, we're also a teaching university. I mean, whereas if I were at MIT or Stanford or Cornell or Chicago, I could well be teaching only one course a year, allowing me to take on such projects. So that's why when I said earlier, you know, yes, I, it's in my DNA to be a professor, but at this point, I so would want to only be spending my time either just doing research, writing academic papers, writing books, producing content, just just production, production, production. No administration, no grading, no whiny entitled students. Just, you know, you want to learn, you want to talk ideas, you want to produce ideas, let's do it. That's what I should be spending all my time with doing. Thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. Moving on to the next person. Oh, I think I just missed a few. Thank you so much. A lot of incoming questions. Uh, Okay, Nick is done. So I'm moving on to Azimuth Enigma. What a name. Is there any current event that you find unsettling? Uh, I mean, it's nothing that I didn't know already that I haven't experienced myself. And that when you you see all of the... um, the Twitter dumps that are happening, the Twitter uh, files, I think they're called, it's unbelievably unsettling. The fact that you have governments that are operating in concert with social media companies to decide who should be, whose voice should be amplified, whose voice should be deamplified, which story should not be mentioned because it's misinformation or it's too dangerous to share Hunter Biden's story, Sam Harris, utter cretin. Uh, and I say this only because it is extraordinary that somebody with his platform and supposed intellect could violate the ontological principles the way that he has. But anyways, that that is very unsettling to me. 
once you have the FBI that is uh, politically corrupted, uh, compromised, once you have medicine compromised, once you have academia compromised, once you have the uh, the justice system compromised, you know, things that should be above political machinations all being compromised, that's civilizationally unsettling. So I think that's an, and hence why I wrote The Parasitic Mind. So that I find very unsettling. And, you know, the more information you get, the more you realize the extent of the rot. And so that's not good. Okay, thank you so much, Azimuth Enigma. Moving on to Will Bui, maybe. Thank you so much for your contribution, but you've retracted your message. My Not my apologies, but I'm sorry that you did. But thank you for your donation. Khan Min uh, Nguyen is back. Sorry for the ambiguity. I'm all for scientific research on LGBT people. I'm not afraid of people's misuse of research for eugenics. I have faith in honest scientists like you in discovering the truth. Thank you. I really appreciate those words. Uh, you want to you hear about an honest scientist? Jay Batasharia. Okay. I just had him on my show about a month ago. He is one of the uh, co-authors uh, of the Great Barrington Declaration with two other professors, where early in the COVID pandemic, he offered a, a measured response to a lot of the COVID policies where he said, hey, look, life is, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but life is costs and benefits. Life is trade-offs. Uh, you can't, I mean, by the way, I had said the exact same thing unbeknownst that he had said it, which is, and I came from perspective from operations research, from, from applied mathematics, whereby when you're trying to optimize a function, either minimize something or maximize something, you usually you're doing it across many attributes. So it's not just minimize number of deaths from COVID, okay? Because that would be a single attribute maximization function. But the reality is it's minimize number of death subject to many constraints, one of which is suicide and depression and lost bankruptcies of small businesses. And so life is not a singular variable that you have to optimize, whether it be to minimize it or maximize it. And so so speaking of honest scientists, I, I had him on the show. We had a fantastic conversation. Please go check it out. Jay Batasharia. It's one of, I think it's my last chat that I held on the on my show. Not only an amazing scientist, courageous, honest, unencumbered by the prevailing stifling orthodoxy. He he really suffered at Stanford. You would think he's he's immune. I mean, he's a Stanford professor of medicine and of health economics. He's now, I think, going to be a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. So, I mean, you can't get, you know, more impeccable credentials. And yet the the costs that he had to bear were unbelievable. Speaking of which, tomorrow. You're hearing it here. Tomorrow, I'm hosting on my show Dr. Scott Atlas, who was another one of those irreverent kind of uh, anti, not anti-COVID, but you know, against the orthodoxy of the COVID policies. Let's let's mask kids until the year thirty forty-seven. You know, let's lock down everybody until uh, the end of time. Uh, and so again, he offered some sort of measured, you know, uh, positions. Now, that was already bad enough, but then he did the, quote, unthinkable. He accepted Orange Himmler's. You know who Orange Himmler is? You know who that is? The one who broke the Malibu meditator's mind. Donald Trump, he accepted his invitation to serve as his national uh, 
COVID advisor. And for that, all of the super progressive, see, you have to speak with a lisp. When you're super progressive, you're sophisticated. And so all of the super progressive professors could never, you know, pardon him for such a transgression. Um, so he'll be on the show tomorrow. So thank you for that, uh, Mr. Nguyen. Uh, regrettably, you often find dishonest scientists and academics, but but there are still a lot of good people out there. So uh, hold out hope that uh, truth, honesty, and decency will prevail in science. Guitar Max, thank you so much for uh, your uh, donation. Gad, what role do you see atheist organizations playing today? Many are, are ideologically captured, but there are some like Atheists for Liberty, which still seem focused purely on atheism slash religion. It's funny that you mention Atheists for Liberty. I hope that I'm not misspeaking, but I believe that I'm on there because I, I get asked to sit on a, a mil million of these boards. I don't accept many, but I think I sit on their board. And I think I sit also on another board, Atheist International Alliance or something. That one is completely insane. They're, they're engaging in all sorts of in and fighting and one of their former executives is, is you know fighting with the whole so i get all these mass emails i usually just dump them into the trash bin uh but yeah you're right where there are humans there are problems uh, uh, and so even though they start off with a good mission which is to to protect the rights of the non-believers and in, in countries where it might be a death sentence to be a non-believer so it's, you know, people should be free to practice their religion, but they should also be able to be free of religion. We, we forget that freedom. Uh, I can't say anything more about that other than, um, yeah, I, I support both the freedom of people to, to, to be religious. And by the way, people often have thought, and well, not, not often, but once in a while when I make some criticism of religion, Sometimes people will get upset at me that I'm being anti-religious. I'm, I'm, I'm hardly that in the sense that I, as a matter of fact, I recognize that evolutionarily speaking, it, it, it makes more functional sense to be a believer than to be an atheist. It's a lot harder as a default value to be an atheist than to be a believer for all sorts of reasons, which I won't get into here. So I'm not hostile to religion. It's just that being a man of evidence, it's difficult for me to say, you know, because I was born Jewish, I know that I'm part of the chosen people and I know that God looks after me and all you other fuckers, sorry. And of course, if I were Muslim, I would think that. If I were Christian, I would think that and on and on and on. So this kind of uh, irrational tribalism where what what it says in my holy book is the right thing because it says it in my holy book, I'm not, a fond, I'm not fond of and I wasn't a fond of it when I was five and six when I would ask my dad, why are we standing up now during prayers? This is in Lebanon. And he said, shut up. Just, just do. And I was like, yeah, I don't think the Godfather plays that way. Although I wasn't known as the Godfather when I was five. So thank you so much, Guitar Max, for your question. Moving on. We got Laura Farley. Thank you so much for your uh, donation. Let me read your question or comment. Love your bravery, Dr. Saad. You're missing an A. It's, it's Saad, Saad, but thank you. Seeing as you escaped the Lebanese Civil War in 1975 when it began and it ran until 1990, do you feel any survivor guilt? Wow, what? You know, I might actually think that that's the first time I've heard the question that way because what you're doing is you're you're contextualizing the length of time that I was there, which was just the first year. Well, just, it was enough. 
compared to the entirety of the war? Uh, frankly, I, I don't. Uh, I'm, if anything, I'm so thankful. I, I, I briefly, I guess, allude to this both in the parasitic mind and then in my, in my latest book and the one where I talk about, you know, happiness and the good life. You know, once you go through these types of ordeals, it really contextualizes the the magic of life, the vicissitudes of life. The you know, if I had turned this way, the sniper would have gotten me. If I turned that way, this militia would have executed me. If the people who picked us up to drive us to the Beirut airport were hardened PLO militia, PLO militia who could have taken the money uh, that they were given to protect us and said, yeah, okay, let's take him to a ditch and put a bullet in, in, in their heads, as has been the fate of millions of people throughout human history. So if anything, I I don't think I have felt survivor guilt, more a just a deep appreciation uh, for life. Uh, and so it really is one of those anti-fragile arguments, which is to go through such, such you know, existential stressors in your childhood uh, if you integrate that reality well into your personhood, then you wake up every day saying, yeah, okay, I'm pissed off about some whiny student. Guess what? I got out of the Middle East. Every single one of my family got out, notwithstanding some of the horrors that we went through. And so I'm thankful. So, But thank you so much for your question, uh, Ms. Farley. Moving on to Will uh, Bowie. I think it's the second time by Hello, Dr. Sad. I love the parasitic mind. Thank you so much. I'm curious, what keeps you and so many other talented people in Montreal when the taxes are so high? Oh, my God, you had to go there. Um, well, you, we got to know that I've taken some steps that will hopefully uh, legally protect me against some of the taxes. But you're absolutely right that there is no... The, the taxes in, in, in Canada in general, in Quebec in particular... Are are literally criminal. In other words, in a in a in a cosmic sense, future historians will look at this and say it was impossible that this was tolerated. Not unlike how you know it was legal to have slavery. Well, guess what? I'm I'm 58 percent of a slave, right? I'm only 42 percent a free individual because this book, my words, my thoughts, my ideas, my lived experiences, my childhood in Lebanon, is not owned by me. There's a government that takes the proceeds of that. Ireland doesn't believe that. Ireland says, you write a book, we can't tax that. that that's your intimate neuronal firings. There is something unique about the creation of, of books or, or art that adds to the, the pantheon of that culture. And therefore, we're not going to tax that. Why do I stay here? Frankly, for me, it's, it's one main reason. You know, it's very, very hard to become an academic. It's unbelievably competitive. Thousands and thousands of students go to the top PhD programs. And out of those, very few will ever become get an assistant professorship. Very few will get tenure. Very few will become full professors. Very few will become chaired professors. Very few will become at my level. And so I've built an academic career over now almost 30 years. It's 29 years. I, I became a professor, a young professor, at the age of 29, I'm now 58. So it's hard to walk away from that, both in terms of the, the capital that you've built, but also in terms of if I'm going to be, forgive me, but uh, crass and my pecuniary concerns, my monetary concerns, I'm a tenured professor who commands a, 
a guaranteed salary. And so it's hard to walk away from that. That's why I always, you know, tell people that, you know, if, if I were to find a way to monetize my time, you know, I mean, think about when my very good friend, Jordan Peterson, I say very good friend because I don't want you to think that I'm, you know, envious or anything. I, I, I love the guy. I adore him. I mean, really just a deep bro bromance that we have with each other. Just a, just a lovely guy. Uh, you know, he was making at 1.2 million dollars on Patreon. If I were to provide the type of uh, exchange with my fans, whereby I give you this and you get, you know, in my case, I just appeal to people's, uh, you know, fairness. Hey, I'm giving you this content. Why don't you donate? Hey, why don't you super chat me? Now, of course, some of you are are very kind, and you say, yeah, I think it's fair to monetize your time. But most they just want to consume for free. But if I were able to have the financial freedom that would allow me to still be very active, maybe even more active, uh, but without having the shackles of uh, uh, you know all of the administration and all the teaching that comes with being a professor, I would leave Montreal. And so that, and plus, to be honest with you, my my extended family is in Montreal. My parents. Uh, Several of my siblings are in Montreal. My wife's parents are here. Her siblings are here. So it's not quite so easy. But believe me, we have for a long time been thinking about leaving. Historically, it was always to Southern California, whereas now, of course, you know, Texas and certainly Florida have, have become a lot more uh, appealing. So it's all on the table. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your donation and for your question. I appreciate it. JC Tug, thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, hello, Dr. Saad. What inspires you the most in your life these days? What a great question. Uh, I just love the process of creating. So today, for example, there was absolutely no reason for me to, I, I don't know how much money I'm going to make off this thing, maybe 200 bucks, 300 bucks, 400 bucks. So certainly compared to what my hourly consulting rate is, Whatever I'm offered in terms of your lovely super chats would certainly be less than the money that I could make doing something else. But there will be a clip, a taped clip of what we're talking about here that I can post later on my YouTube channel and on my podcast. And, you know, many, many thousands of people will watch it. And I've created content. I've created, that's the word, creative impulse, right? That's what always inspires me whether I'm creating a new academic paper that gets published in a beautiful journal that gets cited by 200 other academics, whether it be I write a book that people send me photos of the book what, and they're reading it on some beach in Peru and some beach in Ecuador and you know some beach in Japan and in Dubai. That's exciting, right? That, that started, that book started as an empty word document I opened up the laptop. There was not a single word typed. And then a year later, 14 months later, I submit that book to the publisher, goes through a production process. One day it comes out and then hundreds of thousands of people read it. That's what inspires me. What inspires me is, and I don't, I don't mean that in the least, but it's not an egotistical thing or a narcissistic thing. It's the thousands of people that come up to me on the street. I mean, in a, in a very small way, because I'm hardly as famous as Messi, but I guess I'm pretty well known. 
the way that people come up to you with such love, with such kindness, with such words to say, that inspires me because look, if you're a musician, you want to know that people are streaming your music and they love it and they chose it for their wedding song and that they, you know, they remember when they danced their first slow song at the high school dance or whatever, right? That's what music does to you. So in my case, what inspires me is to create stuff, books, academic papers, online content that people consume and love and appreciate and then send you words of gratitude. What what could be more enriching? What could be more inspiring than that? So it's just, as I explained in my next book, be in the process of creation, whether you, you create as a chef or you create as an architect or you create as an author or as a professor, create. Messi creates, right? He, What makes Lionel Messi magical? He's an artist. He's creating magic. He's creating poetry in motion. So whichever way you use to instantiate the creative impulse, that's what's going to get you purpose and meaning. I don't want to give away so much from your book. I want you to all buy it. Hopefully, I want to see all the the photos you take with between you with you and the book. And by the way, I'll give you a little thing. The the book cover is constitutes it's actually a photo of of me. So let me give you the the backstory of that. See, if, had you not come to today's ask me anything, you wouldn't know it. Last Thursday, I went to a big fancy photo shoot makeup artist and fancy professional photographer, fancy studio, the whole thing, because my publisher wanted to take new photos of Fingad rather than they had all these beautiful photos of Fatgad. And so the final picture is kind of me looking at you in the front cover with a nice kind of smiley face. It's a book on happiness. So I hope that uh, you'll like it. So that's what inspires me, creating, making people happy. Uh, call me Studo. Well, thank you. You're back again. Yes, you are. Thank you for your second contribution of the day. Here again, can you comment on the proximate and ultimate role of comedy in social relations and society? Curious to hear your thoughts on the necessity of comedians in today's polarized climate. Thank you. Wow. Great question. As a matter of fact, my uh, last... Sorry, I'm just going to drink. I'm getting... My last postdoc... For those of you who don't know, a postdoc is someone who already has a PhD and then they want to get more training. So they usually will find a professor to do a one-year postdoc, two-year postdoc, sometimes three-year postdoc. Sometimes they do multiple postdocs because it's so difficult to get a professorship. They try to build up their publishing record, their CV, to hopefully be able to compete for a professorship. My last postdoc, his doctoral dissertation was on the evolutionary roots of of humor. And so uh, the best way to answer that in a general way is that uh, music is a sexually selected trait. By the way, I talk about that in my next book where I talk about uh, how to choose the optimal spouse, you know, to make you happy. And one of which is, uh, you know, a playful, uh, playful mindset, uh, you know, someone who's funny. Now, the reason why that's a sexually selected trait, much more driving female mate choice rather than male mate choice, is that humor is a proxy 
construct for intelligence, right? When women say, I, I'm very attracted to a funny guy, they're effectively saying I'm, I'm attracted to an intelligent guy because it's, excuse me, it's very, very difficult to be someone who's truly funny in the, in the, I mean, think about Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is probably smarter than a lot of the moronic professors that I hang out with. Uh, I'm not trying to denigrate my, you know, my some of my academic colleagues, but they may be narrowly intelligent in that they know within their very specialized lane a lot, more than most people in the world, but then take them out of their lane, they're babbling buffoons. Whereas for someone like Dave Chappelle to get up when 15,000 people have paid a lot of money to hear you and they want to say, okay, make me laugh, make me laugh. And for you to be able to, to weave these stories with the cadence that he weaves them in, with the rhythm and timing that he delivers his lines, you can't be a moron and do that, to have those insights. And so the general evolutionary explanation for the existence of humor is that it is a sexually selected trait that is largely driven by female mate choice when choosing uh, you know, uh, prospective male suitors. So there you have it. So thank you so much for coming back with that question. Yofer uh, Sheffield. Sheffield, the only thing I know about Sheffield is uh, Sheffield City and Sheffield United. At one point, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they were both in the premiership. But now, maybe they're both in the second division or what's now called the championship. I don't know. Tomorrow, so let me just read uh, this. Oh, tomorrow marks the 11th anniversary of the death of Christopher Hitchens. Okay, I, 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 did, I knew that it was in December. I hadn't uh, noted the date. I wrote a Psychology Today article uh, many years ago uh, to honor Christopher Hitchens. I, I never had the pleasure uh, of meeting him, but uh, of sort of contemporary people, if you had asked me who is someone that I would have really wanted to meet and, and get to know, he'd be, boy, he'd be right up there. Uh, not only because obviously, you know, he had a great mind, but you know, I always tell people, activate your inner honey badger. Hey, that was one hell of a honey badger. You did not want to get, uh, you don't, you don't want to be at the receiving end of one of his uh, verbal beatdowns. Uh, and I respect that. I like someone who, you know, does not suffer fools gladly. So thank you for reminding us of the anniversary of uh, Mr. Hitchens passing. Thank you so much. Uh, Kwambi Fabu, thank you so much for your, um, contribution. Are we participating in the most massive Milgram experiment in history? I mean, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, of course, Stanley Milgram is the experiment where he showed that you can get people to zap another person to death simply because people want to, uh, you know, obedience to authority. Hey, you agreed to do this now, zap him. And even if you're ostensible, I mean, in reality, they, they, they didn't know that they weren't actually zapping the other person. Uh, if any of you have never seen the footage of the Stanley Milgram experiment or read about it, you really need to. It's, it's, it's arguably the most famous experiment in behavioral sciences in, in the history of the behavioral sciences or psychology. 
so I'm not exactly sure what you mean by are we, you know, so who who we're is it that we are we're all pawns obeying authority and the authority are the COVID overlords. So I, I don't you need to fill me in on what you mean by this analogy. But I appreciate your donation. Thank you so much. Moving on. Synthesize synthesizer Neil. Uh, thank you for your donation. Thank you for continuing to call out Sam Harris. Your willingness to do so was a huge relief for me, showing me that I wasn't the only one who noticed it. I appreciate all of your work. Thank you so much for saying so. You know, I really was conflicted for a very long time about whether I should do so because I had two, if you like, ethical systems within me speaking against each other. On the one hand, I had the 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 personal code of conduct of, you know, try to give as much leeway to personal friends that you shouldn't attack them. It's kind of like the old Middle Eastern thing or, uh, you know, think about the Bedouins. When someone is a guest in your tent or in your home, then you you defend them to death, right? They're, they're under your, uh, your uh, minion, uh, dominion, and therefore that's it. And so for a very, very long time, as he was going completely wacko, I never spoke out against him. But then that went against my deep and desperate uh, commitment uh, to authenticity. How can I, how could truth and freedom be the guiding principles of my life if I don't call out someone who is being a huge violator of deontological principles. And so that's when I said, okay, let me roll up the sleeves. And at first I was I was critiquing him in my kind of sarcastic way. I was hiding under the desk. I was being, you know, jocular. And I thought he would go, ha ha, you got me, God. But he flipped out. He unfollowed me. He blocked me. He started saying bad things. I said, okay, well, now you're an asshole. And therefore I said, okay, all bets are off. So thank you for, for saying that. Uh, it wasn't an easy decision for me to, to take because... You know, I don't. I don't have any personal animus against Sam. If tomorrow he said, "Hey, come on my show," or "Once I come on your show, let's go to dinner," I'd be happy to. I don't care either way. It's not like he's my best friend. I know him. We've had dinner. We've we've spoken many. You know, sometimes I've been on his show, but ultimately, he decided to to go crazy and you know go wacko. That's his business. Thank you. Okay, let's keep going. There was a second ago. Uh, uh, I, there was. I saw a super chat for a hundred dollars, but I missed it. I don't know if that means the person took it out, but I don't know how to. I only know how to do it serially. It was on top. It was for a lot of money donation. Now I don't see it anymore. I don't know if that means the person got pissed waiting. I don't know. Let's see. And if it is, I am truly sorry. I just basically scroll down each time I see a donation. So I don't know if there's a better way of doing this. Uh, Maybe I just lost the the chance at a major donation. If I did, I'm an idiot because it was a very nice donation. Okay, we've got... Uh, now I feel really guilty that this person had given me this donation and got pissed maybe now because the donations kind of come serially and then the biggest ones go on top. Now, I don't know if they go on top. That means they go on top of the queue and you should first choose them. I don't know how that process works. So I just go down the list in the order that I see them. So to that person, my apologies if I didn't come to you. AG, I don't know what the currency is, CLP, but the number looks big. It might be two cents. 
I hope it's not. Hello, doctor. Love your book, videos, and tweets. Question, have you ever considered working as a soccer coach or for a club as the psychologist? Cheers. I haven't only because, you know, uh, it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm a professor. I study evolutionary psychology and consumer psychology. So it'd be kind of a complete switch of career to say, hey, let me become a professional sports psychologist at this point. That's not really uh, the track I've taken. Of course, I undoubtedly would have, I think, the necessary uh, skills and knowledge to be able to do so. But interestingly, on a related note, I have been approached by several organizations to speak to their players. I was in, invited once, none of which I've ever uh, accepted the invitation for various reasons, just being busy. But I, if I remember correctly, a few years ago, the uh, the kind of Canada basketball people had reached out to me. And then I've had the, I think the head coach of the national team of wrestling reach out to me, who's a, he's a fan. And I've also had uh, the head coach of my university's football team reach out to me. In, in each case, it was, you know, a lot of the players know you and respect you and would love to, you know, hear some kind of motivational stuff from you and so on. So in that sense, I think I could have maybe been a, a, a ad hoc sports psychologist, but as a career that's not the path that I took, so I guess not. Uh, as a soccer coach, uh, frankly, I've thought, if if nothing else, to to be the soccer coach for my children's team because obviously, I you know, given my background as a competitive soccer player, I could have uh, hopefully contributed. But it takes time, and and the, the reality is, even though I I try to go to as many of my children's games, you know, to go to four practices a week and then the games and this. I, I don't necessarily have the, 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 the time to, to dedicate to it. And I hope that later in life, I won't regret that I didn't take such positions. But, but for now, I'll just be the parent who, who cheers from the sidelines. Thank you so much, AG. Moving on to the next person. Let's see who else we got here. We can't be running out. To the person who gave the huge donation, if you want to come back, Again, my apologies if I missed you. I hope I didn't offend you. We have Ron Kanachi. Is it possible to scientifically calculate <laughs> your divine masculine sexuality? What unit of measurement could be used? I don't think that science has yet come close to. I mean, look at look at it. Look, look at the color of those eyes. Look at the size of those lips. By the way, underneath this, there's a cleft chin. The jawline is ridiculous. Testosterone marker. Look at the widow's peak. No, there is no way to scientifically measure something as sublime. That's why I'm known as Dr. Goodlooks. No, but in all seriousness, <laughs> by the way, that's one of the lovely things I, I, I love about, you know, having all sorts of fans is that most people enjoy and play along with my humor, all of the four aggrandizing and all this. And of course, it's the few haters who don't get the humor who say, yeah, you're such a such an arrogant guy. It's all for fun. A lot of it is self-deprecating. I mean, I'm the guy who says, hey, check out this fat gat photo when I was a walrus. That doesn't seem like it's very arrogant when you speak about yourself that way. But yes, am I hauntingly gorgeous? Yes. Am I the fantasy of most men and women? Yes. Can science measure that? No. In the same way that you can't put words to messy. All right, there you go. Thank you so much, Ron. You made me smile. That was lovely. Uh, just a, I don't know, is that yen? I don't know what that is. 
but thank you for your donation. We're moving on. We got Chinsi. Hold on. We got Chinsi 13. I think that's where we're at. Yeah. We're at Chinsi 13. Hi, Gad. I have a toxic, childless aunt who will not take responsibility for her mental health challenges. How does one deal with such a family member who believes a new child is supposed to bring family closer together? I mean, the amount of additional information I would have to grill you on or elicit from you before being able to offer any semblance of a reasonably intelligent response is too great. So I, I don't, I don't, you know, I have epistemic humility, as I think some of you who follow me know, and that I don't BS when I don't know what to answer something. So, you know, you haven't given me enough. She's toxic in what way? You know, which personality disorders does she exhibit that you would consider to be toxic? And so I, so I, I simply don't have enough to be able to answer you, offer you an answer there. So I, I'm sorry that given your lovely donation, I'm leaving you dry. But I don't know what to say. If you want to write more stuff, give me more, more details. But I suspect that the, this is the type of question that uh, you know requires a lot more information for me to offer any semblance of an intelligent answer. But thank you so much for your contribution. And again, it's not that I don't wish to answer you. It's just that I would be completely shooting in the dark. I'd have no idea what I'm talking about. Azimuth Enigma is back. Crypto or precious metals, not financial advice. Yes, yes, definitely not financial advice. Look, I know next to nothing about crypto. I mean, I get the, the general blockchain stuff and decentralized and all this, but a pigeon knows more about crypto than me. So forget that. I always felt it had an, an air of bullshit and that the bubble was going to collapse. That's how I felt. Many of my friends said, hey, come on, God, get in. I just made this much money, that much money. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's tax-free. You complain about taxes, you're going to make tons of money, you deserve it, blah, blah, blah. And now look what's happening. So I can't really tell you much. Certainly precious metals. I, I've been approached, by the way, by several gold companies to for me to do uh, ad reads on my show. So maybe I will take those up. I'm always a bit weary about doing so uh, because, you, you know, you don't always, you know, notwithstanding that, you know, I'm not legally, I'm not giving you financial advice, blah, blah, blah. I'm not legally uh liable to you and so on i always feel a bit uncomfortable saying do this do that even when it's an ad an endorsed ad because then i feel bad if something goes wrong so i've so far held back although i i have had a company that endorses uh my show uh that that they sort of provide a very cool kind of uh, investment venue i won't i won't add more information here uh, but all other things considered, certainly from a risk management perspective, precious metals is probably maybe safer than crypto, but that's all I know about this topic. Uh, cars and depth. Thank you so much, uh, for your, oh, I recognize who this is. You'd like my friend Jack Barrett's article on Philip uh, Wynn of the spinners. His Substack is avoidable contact forever. But that was a nice plug for the donation that you gave, but no worries. Thank you so much. Uh, I did see the 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 thing that you sent me, but the Substack, I had to subscribe to be able to read it, and I couldn't bother giving my password and this. 
So if you've got a, an open access one that you'd like to send me, I'd be happy to read it. I love the spinners, by the way. Uh, uh, I'll Be There uh, by the Spinners is one of those iconic childhood songs that I love. My children have grown up listening to that stuff. So uh, I, I'd be happy to look at that article. But the spinners are, are fantastic. So thank you for that. Uh, okay, let's keep going. Kwame Fabu is back. I oh, yes. My allusion to the Milgram experiment was to illustrate our blind obedience to the... Okay, that's exactly what I thought. That's the that's the analogy that I drew, that, that COVID overlords. Uh, so, yes, let me just read again what you said. My allusion to the Milgram experiment was to illustrate our blind obedience to authority in the age of COVID. Perhaps the Stanford uh, prison experiment is more apropos. I, I, in a sense, I guess it's a combination of both of these. You're right. So, yes, right, because in the, in the, in the Stanford... In the um, uh, Stanford experiment, it'll be they're the corrections officers and we are the, the, the prisoners. And then they become more sadistic as they assume the the obedience to that role. So that would be uh, that experiment. If we're doing the Milgram, then it would be what we just said before, which is, you know, they're zapping you, quote, zapping you with their ever haphazard and punitive draconian uh, COVID uh, policies. So in that sense, your your analogy is, is on point. So thank you for that. Thank you for that clarification. That's exactly what I thought you were alluding to. Uh, Marden A, thank you for your donation. I think you and Rolo Tommaso would have a great talk. You know, I, I truly wonder whether it's Rolo Tomasi, who does this as kind of a, a bot attack or whether he's got fans or whether he tells his fans, because I don't think I've ever had greater frequency of kind of constant badgering of for me to speak to this gentleman. And and it's not as though I don't want to speak to this gentleman. It's and I'm not trying to, you know, be obnoxious about. But in any given day, I receive I, I couldn't tell you how many invitations and this and that. And it's just a question of time, right? Uh, you know, I I use some kind of heuristic to decide who I can respond to or, uh, you know, how many shows I can go on in a given year or, or in a given month uh, with all the stuff that I have to do. So to the extent that I've never been on Rolo's show, it's probably because I haven't had a chance to do so. Hopefully one day it will happen. That's all I can say about this. Uh, Daniel Philippus, thank you so much for your um donation evening dr sad what was your thought process before taking the mnra jab did you speak to any friend scholars on the subject before deciding yes i did uh you know i know a lot of virologists I'm my personal physician i've got all sorts of people in academia and the general uh uh you know cumulative evidence if you'd like was that it was totally reasonable for us to take it uh as in anything there are pros and cons there are multiple possible positions but the totality of uh findings uh were that it is certainly reasonable for someone in my position to be taking and not that i knock on wood knock on wood uh i don't have any uh you know complications other than perhaps the fact that i used to be asthmatic and therefore, I'm very prone to severe respir respiratory problems. So if, if, if you, for example, get a cold and it goes away after four days, in my case, if it migrates to my chest and then I get bronchitis and then I get asthma that's associated with that bronchitis, it can 
very, very quickly turn really, really scary in the sense that, and this, I'm not talking about during COVID era, just a run of the mill cough becomes, you know, a life or death thing where, you know, I'm, I'm up for six hours at night gasping for air on, you know, on the precipice of having to go to the hospital to get oxygen. Now, luckily over the past few years, maybe because I've gotten in such good shape, maybe because I've lost a lot of weight, I haven't had these kinds of episodes, but for all sorts of reasons, it made, uh, it seemed to make perfect sense for me to, to get the, the COVID vaccine. And that's one of the things, by the way, that really, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was so shocked that when I wrote, let's say that I was getting the vaccine or when I eventually did get COVID, which is only now this past fall, everybody in my family got COVID. The kind of vitriol I got from people was insane. So I got vitriol from both sides. When I said to people, I think the tweet that I had sent out was something like, despite having had four vaccinations, I'm I'm here to tell you that I finally contracted COVID. Uh, people wrote to me who, who were pro-vaccine and said, what an asshole you are. You wrote despite. So you're now questioning the efficacy and the need to have the, the vaccine. You're a scientist, blah, blah, blah. So they were angry that I used the word despite. Of course, on the other side, tons of my followers, many, many, wrote, I thought you were the greatest academic. You're the you're supposed to be a man of reason. You're the guy who wrote the parasitic mind. Well, you're an asshole. You're a fraud. You're a parasitized mind being tricked into getting it. So all these people who believe in personal agency, who love me for defending personal agency, personal freedom, personal dignity, were not willing to grant me that right. I was an asshole to the people who were pro-vaccine for saying despite getting the four jabs. And I was an asshole to the to people who were anti-vaccine because I succumbed to the scam of the vaccine. Guess what? You're all assholes. Because the point of personal freedom and personal dignity is that you take the best decision for you based on your idiosyncratic realities, based on a conversation between you and your personal physician. My reality is different from yours, asshole. Okay? So you can't be writing to me and saying, I so respect you for defending personal rights and personal freedoms, but then write to me and say, you're an asshole for exercising your personal rights and your personal freedoms. Okay? So F off to all of you. You are part of the problem, whether you are pro or anti-vaccine. What government should never do is force people to go one way or the other. That's what's wrong. That's it. Now, once we exercise personal agency, you F off. That's what freedom is. Unbelievable. All right, let me go on. Uh, yeah, so I answered Daniel Philippus. Thank you, sir. Marden A, I think is back. No, I'm a real person. You both have helped me greatly. And I thought that people might love to hear what you both have to say through a discussion. Oh, this is about uh, uh, role. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, thank you for, for confirming that you're not a bot or you're not Rolo or whatever. Uh, I think either he has, or I think he's got another person who works with him on some show. They had invited me. I received an email. I hope I'm not misspeaking. I, I Again, I'm, I can be completely confused, but I think they had invited me to go in person to, I think they're in Las Vegas. If you're asking me to fly out to Las Vegas, there better be some dollar figure associated with that. 
unless you think, well, you know, professors are just nice people. They'll do it for free. So you go ahead and tell Rolo, if he wants to buy my time to go to, to Las Vegas, then I'm all ears. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Martin A. Oh, Bartolome Esteban Murillo. I just love that name. Just love it. I mean, how could you not amount to something big in life with such a name? Ladies and gentlemen, Bartolome Esteban Murillo. Thank you so much for your contribution. Second contribution of the day. And I think I think each time I've had one of these, you've contributed. So thank you for your generosity. Hello again, Dr. Saad. Have you heard of Gerald Celente? I think what you guys are trying to do today is basically point to the fact that I know nothing. Because now I this is the fourth name, I think, that someone has mentioned that I don't know who that is. I don't know who Gerald Salente is. I think you would have a fruitful conversation. Good night. I must complete my duties. I love that. See, only someone named Bartolome Esteban Murillo could end with good night. I must complete my duties. I think Mr. Bartolome Esteban Murillo might be Dracula. Are you Dracula? Can you? Can I just get a thumbs up or thumbs down? I think you might be Dracula. Thank you so much. Have a great night as well. Mr. M Class. Okay, let's go to Mr. M Class. I hope I haven't missed anybody. For your information, I made a final exam for students to perform a rhetorical analysis of Sam Harris's position from trigonometry supporting a conspiracy to suppress free speech. Popular exam unless woke. Oh, very nice. So have you, how did they perform? I'm, I'd be curious to see what their, uh, uh, you know, what the final grades look like. But I think that's a, a wonderful way to test using an actual real life example to test uh, people's uh, critical thinking abilities or certainly rhetorical abilities. Thank you for, for mentioning that example. Nick K is back. Thank you so much. I am 95th percentile on agreeableness big five personality how does one learn to create an own voice in the world instead of always agreeing uh, that's a great question um i mean i could i could only i think i could only answer it uh intimately for me uh that's why by the way in the parasitic mind in chapter one when i talk about what are the ideals that 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 shape the the script of my life the, what are the fundamental values that I adhere to in my life. And I said, truth and freedom. Why, why are those so important to me? Because ultimately they shape all of the, the trajectories, the behavioral trajectories, the positional trajectories that I take in my life, right? So why am I a honey badger? Well, that's part of my personality, but it's because if I, if one of my life ideals is truth and I see a violation of truth, then I can't be authentic in my personhood if I don't fight it. So why do I get on Twitter and argue with some moron with four followers? Because to me, it doesn't matter whether you are, whether, you know, how many followers you are. If you are murdering truth, if you are raping truth, then I can't help but not walk away from the fight that I have to come after you, that I have to correct it. You know, and I, and I say, I'm the professor of the people because, you know, for me, it's a lot, less important for you to think that I'm sweet and kind than for me to have known that at the end of the day, when I put my head on the pillow, that I was authentic to myself and that I didn't walk away from defending truth when I saw somebody murdering truth. So that's the only answer I give you, which is, you know, 
being agreeable is great. By the way, in terms of my personality, I'm I'm very friendly, very warm, you know, very passionate, uh, you know, truly. But then when you see me sometimes on on social media, uh, getting spicy with people, it's not because you know suddenly there's a switch and I'm Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. It's because in that forum, in that MMA, you know, fighting forum, then I can't be agreeable and sweet and extrovert. You know, if if I'm fighting in the MMA, I have to be violent. And so in this case, sometimes I'm rhetorically quote violent because I'm dealing with assholes. And usually, by the way, I'm only as spicy in my exchange when you uh, will violate certain social norms. You insult, you're patronizing, you're condescending, you're insulting. And then then I reserve the right to to smack you around. And so, uh, so I think there's no getting around the fact that while it's important to be agreeable and to have people like you and to be uh, thought of as someone who's nice and sweet and gets along, uh, truth ultimately is more important than getting on. That's why I said in The Parasitic Mind, if you have friends who are unwilling to entertain the idea that you and them might hold differing opinions on, on important substantive matters, then fuck those friends. Let their ass, let their the door hit their ass on the way out. Then if, if your friendship can't be anti-fragile, by anti-fragile, I mean that can't stand, that cannot withstand the stressors of you holding differing opinions on important topics, then you're not my friend. So I think you can be agreeable and also dogged in uh, the defense of truth. So there you have it. God damn, so much wisdom being imparted for so little money. I should be charging a lot more for this. All right, Etienne Forêt, or Forest, if if it's in, in I guess in English. Surprised that you never mentioned chemistry as perhaps the best example of network of of uh, cumulative. Uh, of net, nomological network of cumulative evidence before QM, all NNCE after mathematically derived from quantum physics. QM is what? Oh, quantum mechanics. All nomological networks of cumulative. Well, I mean, you know, it's not for me to build a nomological network of cumulative evidence for every possible discipline uh, on Earth, but what's important to do is for me to. Sh- to introduce that epistemological tool and then to let people build those nomological networks in different fields. By the way, I, I published a paper, uh, I think it was in 2020, you can go check it out on Google Scholar, where I argued for the development, the building of a global repository of cumulative, uh, uh, I mean, uh, nomological networks of cumulative evidence. Meaning what? Imagine a Wikipedia repository but the entries are nomological networks of cumulative evidence that that different people go and build. So there's a nomological network on whatever it is that interests you. Well, then people are building it. So now anybody, excuse me, can go to this repository of nomological networks and look for their phenomenon of choice. That would be unbelievable. I think I need to get Elon Musk to work with me on such a project. So there you go. Thank you so much for your uh, donation and for your comment or question. Mark O'Connell. Okay, I hope I didn't miss anybody. Mark O'Connell, what are your favorite films according to personal enjoyment and psychological depth? What a fantastic question. Why? Because I love questions where you take my scientific interests, in this case, psychology, and apply them to 
products of popular culture, right? And as a matter of fact, in in this book, Consuming Instinct, and in this book, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, I have chapters on cultural products as fossils of the human mind. The idea being that if we want to understand universal themes of the human mind, we should study cultural products as such fossils. So, for example, we could study an ancient Greek tragedy or ancient Greek poem to tell us about things that are invariant across time and place. Paternity uncertainty, sibling rivalry, parent-offspring conflict, uh, sexual conquest, uh, and so on. All of the key drivers of uh, literary genres. Uh, so to answer your question, I mean, the first movie that comes to mind, uh, Mr. O'Connell, absolutely, arguably my favorite movie of all time, and actually one that I first saw as an MBA student in an organizational behavior course, uh, kind of on group dynamics, it's 12 Angry Men. But it's 12 Angry Men, the original, not the, you know, the remake. 30, 40 years later, it's the, the original with Henry Fonda and all these other ph phenomenal classic historic actors. For those of you who don't know, the movie is about, well, 12 men who, the whole movie, it's like a play. The whole movie happens in one room where these 12 jurors are deliberating the fate of a young man who's been uh, uh, accused of uh, murder. And it starts off with 11 guilty and one not guilty, Henry Fonda. And then the rest of the movie is the dynamic of the deliberation in that room. It's unbelievable. It's it, And it's unbelievable, I mean, precisely for the reason why the professor at the time, who's since become a good friend of mine, uh, why he chose it for us to watch it as students of organizational behavior or human behavior in general, because there was a group dynamic that was taking place where different psychological persuasion techniques were being used to try to flip each of those jurors. So by far my favorite movie that caters to both your part, your questions, which is personal enjoyment. It's, it's mind blowing how good the movie is. And of course, huge psychological depth because the whole movie is about psychology. Another one that also meets that I, I love that question, by the way. I mean, I love all the questions you guys are asking, but I love this one because I really love the marriage of bringing in some scientific principles to cultural products, in this case, movies. Uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, if you haven't seen it, get your life in order. Focus. What are you doing? Glengarry Glenn Ross, Al Pacino, Kevin Spacey, uh, Jack, is it Jack Warren? Uh, I think that's who it was. Uh, Alec Baldwin, it's a bunch of uh, salesmen going through the grind of how to flip clients and you know cold calling them for these, I think, shady real estate deals. But it's all the psychology of selling. How do you, you know, it, it's multiple, it's on multiple level. It's how does the, the lead sales manager get his Salesforce, again, it's a classic kind of MBA uh, uh, movie. How do you how do you get the sales manager to uh, motivate his sales force to 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 bring in the sales? And then how do how do the salespeople use different strategies to uh, to close the deals with different clients? 
unbelievable. So I would say these are two of my favorites. Uh, I also love uh, Shawshank Redemption. Uh, and I have a very small section, a quote early in, in my next book on hope. Remember, there's a scene between Andy Dufresne. Uh, by the way, Tim Robbins follows me on Twitter, at least last that I checked, maybe a couple of months ago. Uh, or that's when I noticed that he was following me. Uh, and with Morgan Freeman were there. And, and there, of course, there's all kinds of interesting psychological dynamics in the movie. You know, is, is, is it beneficial to be hopeful or is it useless to be hopeful in such a miserable, desolate place? Does hope kill or does does hope keep you alive? And so I use that quote, uh, that exchange and early in my next book to talk about the importance of hope in, in your life. Uh, so I think that would be probably third one. But but I mean, look, the reality is any good movie that, that passes your personal enjoyment score is also one that is likely uh, scores high on psychological richness because really the best movies are not the ones, the Avengers and all those you know bullshit robot movies, which I, I can't understand how anybody can watch these. And I don't think it's a question of age. I didn't like that that stuff when I was 14. I like character-driven stuff, stuff with depth, real stories. I loved Dress to Kill, Brian De Palma. I don't know if you know that one. That, there's a psychological thriller. That's a fantastic one. Go check it out. Brian De Palma with Michael Caine. Unbelievable. He plays a psychiatrist. I won't give it away. It's unreal. 1980. I was 15 years old. Uh, that's another great one. Uh, I loved Moonstruck with Cher. I know. But that's another movie with incredible character interactions. So many, all the movies that I love are ones that are based on uh, psychological sophistication and really rich characters. All About Eve with Betty Davis. Oh my goodness, what an unbelievable movie. So those are some of my favorites. Okay, let's go on. John, thank you so much for your contribution. Soon I present to an entire private high school staff about idea diversity. What argument do you think would lead to maximum effect in only 20 minutes? Well, go to the parasitic mind and read the section where I use evolutionary medicine principles to explain why uh, the human mind and the capacity to reason has to be triggered by ideological stressors. And what I mean by that is you have to be exposed to to contrary ideas in order to hone your critical thinking skills, which speaks to an earlier question that someone had asked me, how do I develop critical thinking? So you can't be a good debater. You can't be a good rhetorician. You can't be a good thinker if you're never exposed to opposing ideas, because then how could you hone your skills as a debater? Okay. So that way, so go to parasitic mind, read that section. And I think hopefully that would fit under your 20 minute limit. Thank you so much. Uh, Okay, who do we got? We got uh, Connor Nurmi. Tips for a third-year STEM PhD student in academia. Well, it's kind of a very broad question. That's like saying tips for mar for life. You mean tips for what? For writing your dissertation? For picking a topic for your dissertation? For maximizing your chances for an academic career? It's hard. If you don't give me what is the objective function that you're trying to maximize, I can't give you the tips. That's that's the honest truth. So I don't want to BS you. If you want to come back with the specifics, I'd be happy to. But given that you haven't given me enough stuff to 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 chew on, how about I answer in this general way? Always be true to truth. 
In other words, don't ever modulate what is true for some careerist expediency measure because then you're a false person. And if one, I mean, never mind that you should be true in all your endeavors. When you are in the business as a PhD student to create knowledge, you are in the business of pursuing truth and you equivocate on truth, then you're an asshole. You're fraudulent. You're, you're, you're faux. F-F-A-U-X. You're, you're not real. Uh, and so I would say that never uh, equivocate when it comes to matters of truth. There you go. Now, at, po- at times, that might mean that uh, you'll take a hit. But screw it. It's better to put your head on the pillow at the end of the night and know that you were always truthful. Okay. Thomas Morris, thank you so much for your contribution. As a 22-year-old man, how can I help stop the the WEF plans? Forgive me. By the way, people, you always have to have theory of mind. Theory of mind is, can I put myself in the position of someone else to know, to expect them that they're going to know what this acronym, what is this world? I don't know what, WEF. Maybe when you tell me what the acronym is, I'll, I'll clearly know it. But unfortunately, I don't know what you're talking about. So I can't answer you that. Oh, Jack Lemon. That was, I said Jack Warren. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, okay. Chrononaut. Thank you so much uh, for your donation. I love the parasitic mind. Thank you. When can we expect a follow-up? Well, I, I mentioned this maybe earlier. You weren't here. But there isn't any immediate, I mean, there's a follow-up in the sense that I have another book coming out uh, in July, which I hope that you'll pre-order. It'll be, it, 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 it'll very, very shortly be av- available for official pre-order. And as I mentioned earlier, it really is important for anybody who is planning on buying the book to pre-order it rather than to purchase it down the line. Because if you amass enough pre-orders, once the book is released, it instantaneously hits the the, the bestsellers list. And then that just serves to further drive sales. And so to the extent that I'm in the business of spreading, hopefully, good ideas, then I care about making such... Uh, so it's not just a money thing. It's 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 making sure that you know people read the works. Uh, so if you mean by follow-up, a follow-up specifically to the parasitic mind, I, I, I'm not planning on writing that anytime soon, although I may. If you mean follow-up in, in that what's my next book, then... Uh, be on the lookout this summer for the sad truth about happiness, the sad S-A-A-D, of course. All right. Thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, I think, are we are we done with the donations? Oh, I think I've covered everybody. And it's an hour 46. Usually I go somewhere around an hour. I think I usually go for about two hours. Oh, we, oh World Economic Forum, the Great Reset Globalist. Thank you. Maybe I should have thought. So you're talking about the the Davos assholes? That's the guys. The 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 we each arrive in private jets, but then we complain. We talk down to all of you plebs, rubes, the great unwashed, the toothless hicks about why you need to eat less meat and no longer have pets because we need to save Earth, and we do that from our private jets. Those guys. Uh, yeah, uh, 
I hate I hate the, the globalists because they're creepy. They're they're anti-human nature. Uh, it is as we know from the World Cup. It is totally normal to have your tribal allegiances uh, activated. And so, what the globalists are basically saying, from an evolutionary perspective, sublimate all of your nationalistic goals. There is no affiliation with your family. With your city, with your you're a global citizen. There is no Canada. Remember, Justin Trudeau said there is no Canadian values. We are a post nation, uh, whatever ethos, whatever bullshit he said. Okay, no, no countries have existed since, uh, if not countries, tribes, if not tribes, clans have existed since time immemorial. And uh, this globalist bullshit. Yes, there are some problems that are relevant at the humanity level, and we should all work together to solve them. But this idea that we transcend national borders and so on is creepy. It's reserved for people who live in, uh, you know, an ideological lala world. So I don't know what is the, you know, what, what specific means by which we can attenuate their their influence. But uh, I'm certainly not a pro globalist kind of guy. Uh, Mike Qualia, what are your plans to watch Messi in the World Cup finals? You know, let me tell you something. You cannot believe the strain, the emotional and psychological strain. Not, and I don't think I'm the only one. I think I'm only one of several billion people that are feeling the exact same thing. We're talking about tribal, right? In this case, my tribal allegiance, I'm not Argentinian. I wasn't born in Argentina. I don't speak Spanish. I didn't grow up in Rosario or Buenos Aires, but I'm part of the Messi tribe. Why? Because Messi, you want to talk about globalist to link to the previous question? Messi transcends national borders. We're all Argentinian. We're all from Rosario. We, right? I'm Argentinian. Why? Because he represents pure artistry, universal artistry, universal humility, universal class, universal poetry. And from a cosmic justice perspective, you want not only the greatest player who's ever lived, but the greatest player that could ever be. You, you cannot engineer a soccer player that is any greater than this guy. I really feel that it would be existentially crushing in, in the purest sense of the term for him to not lift the trophy. It would be a crime against the natural order of things for uh, for him not to, to win it. So I'll be watching it at home with my family we will all be at the precipice of having heart attacks, God forbid. But that's how it was, by the way. During the Netherlands game, I've never experienced such physiological reactions and psychological strain as I did. As a matter of fact, my son was so overwhelmed that he, at one point he said, I'm not watching anymore. He went upstairs and stopped watching, and I was going to do the same thing. So what are my plans? I'm going to hopefully take a deep breath, hopefully... Argentina will take, you know, a, a quick two-goal lead so I can kind of relax and enjoy the rest of the game. If it's going to be very close where you don't know who's going to win or if France, God forbid a million times, takes the lead and it seems like, you know, they're going to win, it's going to be very, very painful. So we'll see. Go Messi. May, may cosmic justice be served. I think we've reached the end of our questions. Unless I've got anybody else 
who wishes it's, we're right on track for almost a two hour uh, session. Uh, by the way, for those of you who are here, that's great. But those of you who want to watch it later, it'll be, of course, available on the YouTube channel. And then later I'll post the audio of this chat uh, on my podcast. So I hope I've not missed anybody, guys. Last chance to put in some questions. Otherwise, in the next minute or so, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much. Anybody? Are we set? Last minute questions. Your son has PTSD from watching soccer. Well, yeah, it's, uh, oh, we just got in Jake. Thank you so much for your contribution. You should do react videos on locals, record your reaction to entertainment media and give your insights. You know, uh, rumbles slash locals has reached out to me and offered me a contract to, to do so, to, to set up a whole thing on, on their platform. And I've been reticent to do so only because once I sign up with someone, I want to give my all to make sure that it's successful. And they told me, don't worry, we don't even expect much. We just want you on our platform. Here's a contract. We'll, you know, we'll, 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 uh, we'll sweeten the pot for you to come and join us. And so it is my absolute hope that I will, hopefully, if they still have the offer operative, because I've, I've kind of been, been delaying it for a few months to accept it. I'd like to eventually set up a locals, uh, you know, behind a paywall thing where there's exclusive content only on locals and then to mirror my, my things on rumble. They also want me to do live streams, uh, you know, uh, every week, uh, the way that I'm doing here. But of course, the reason why I've been also reticent is because I don't want to sign up for such a thing. And then I don't get, you know, if I get, you know, 20, thousand dollars of donations from fans like you know whatever it's five dollars a pop per month which is nothing and you know several thousand people sign up for that as i think they should if if, if you're consuming all of my content paying five dollars a month for exclusive content is hardly a lot to pay it's, it's, it's it makes literally one starbucks coffee now out of the millions of fans that i have if a few thousand do sign up that could be enough for me to have financial freedom but i've been reticent to do so because if I do it and then it doesn't work out, I don't, I don't, then it's, I've done it and it failed. So I've been really reticent to do it until I feel as though I'm ready to commit to doing it so that I can provide people with a type of exclusive content that would, that would compel people to sign up so that I can hopefully make this a success. And so that rumbles and locals would also be, you know, happy to have signed me. I don't want them to sign me, pay me money, and then it turns out to be a dud. So that's the only reason why I've been reticent. But hopefully as my time frees up a bit now that, you know, I'm almost done with the, you know, we're in kind of the, the stages of the production of my latest book. Uh, maybe that's exactly what I'll do. Jake is back in. Thank you so much. Just two words, honey badger. Activate your honey inner honey badger. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, an hour and 54 minutes. Any more questions? Any more super chat questions? If not, Thank you. Oh, talk with Chris at Rumble. Get it on the ground floor, guys. You will not regret it. You, yeah, I think you're right. What was your last video? Oh, you could do a poll on Twitter for testing the type of you know, sign on. Uh, I'm just reading what you guys are writing. What is the new book about? I already mentioned it. It's about the book is titled The Sad Truth About Happiness. It's how to live the good life, how to be happy, how to be content, content and so on. Guys, thank you so much for coming to the uh 
to the uh, live stream today. Uh, I've done seven so far. It's very sporadic. I think eventually, certainly if I sign up with Rumble and Local, it'll be a lot more scheduled. Like you'll know, you know, every Wednesday night we do it or whatever. That way people can kind of return. Whereas here, I just decide on the spur of the moment to do it. And here we go. Uh, oh, we got Jake who's back. Could I send you a story I want to make into a web series? Uh, well, it depends. If it's something that takes me one minute to read, uh, then maybe I will be gracious enough to answer you. If it's something that requires for me to spend 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, 10 hours, then then we'll have to discuss about a consulting agreement because otherwise I receive a thousand of these requests a day, then I would be spending 10 hours a day only answering this. So if you think it is something that I could answer in one minute, I'm happy to do so, pro bono, of course. But if it's something that requires 10, 15, 20, half an hour, an hour, then of course it's a different ballgame. Thank you so much, Jake. Thank you so much to all of the Super Chat donors. You guys have been fantastic. Uh, hopefully next time I could give you a bit more lead time uh, to to kind of get ready. I think I posted it earlier this morning that I would have the show, the live stream today at 5. Maybe people need a bit of air, lead time. I think we had almost 200 people today. So that's not too bad. Thanks, guys. Have a great evening. I'm off to exercise and eat so I can hopefully remain svelte because at some point soon, you may be seeing me going up and down the west coast of Florida. Oh, Mike is back. Oh, thank you for the flawless pronunciation of my name. You like that? I, I, yeah, thank you. Thank you for noticing that. Cheers. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Hey, I made a small donation for pronouncing your name right. If all people were this uh, generous, I might be rich like Elon Musk. Thanks, guys. Have a great evening. See you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.